I hope you've noticed that there's an enormous gap between the Sermon on the Mount and the ethical lives we lead. Right? Between this holy pattern and the passions of American Christians. Passions we have aplenty, but they're not these passions. And yet, Jesus consistently refuses to lower the standard. There's no word in the sermon that says, don't worry, you're forgiven, justification will take care of it. I don't really expect you to live this way. And so as he closes the sermon, and that's what he's doing here, he's closing the sermon. It's a sermon, you know, full of shocks and deep challenges to anyone with ears to hear. It's a sermon that refuses to leave us unmolested in our various idolatries. As he closes, right, he first says, enter by the narrow gate. You know, it's interesting. It's, it's a perhaps unusual, unexpected way to close a sermon, right? There's all of this ethical teaching, all of these beatitudes on how we should be in the world, right? And then when he gets to the end, there's all of this apocalyptic warning language about the last day and, and, and the final judgment. There's three or four little sections clustered together at the end, right? The first one was when he said, enter by the narrow gate. The gate is narrow. The road is hard that leads to life. So like if you've been listening, Jesus says, if you've been listening to me, and you think that the ethic of the kingdom of God is unspeakably hard, you are right. It's the way of perfection. As our Father in heaven is perfect. It's right, Jesus says, it's a narrow, long, hard road that leads to eschatological life. And few, he says, few are those who find it. So this closing, this shifting into this key of the last day and its dreadful judgment, right? This is Jesus' way of saying to us and to his audience, look. Most of you will choose not to go this way. That's what he's doing to the audience. You have no intention of actually turning the other cheek or of loving your enemies or of seeking meekness and poverty of spirit above all things. You have no intention of refusing to retaliate or of settling lawsuits at a loss. Or of rejoicing in persecution and slander as the very sign of possessing the kingdom. Or of praying for and blessing your persecutors. How could we have any intention of doing this? We can't refrain from sending a mocking meme of the other political party. You have no intention of actually having your treasure in heaven and not on earth. Or of going a second coerced mile. This is un-American. Right? We are not doormats. It's as if Jesus had the problem with his initial audience. 
So there is, he says, this broad way, this spacious way, this large and easy to travel way, and no one's going to question your petty hatreds on that way, or your retaliations, or your unforgiveness, or your clinging to earthly treasures, or all our various idols. The problem is, that way leads to destruction. So he urges his hearers, as he urges us, enter by the constrained way, the narrow way. That's his opening foray and closing the sermon. And then last week we heard him say this. Watch out. There will be false prophets. They're going to look just like sheep, but they're really wolves. You should be careful. You should examine. You should discern whether the fruit of the Beatitudes is in their lives. If not, they will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Right? Another eschatological judgment image. And then today, in the text I just read from the gospel, he may say the most alarming thing yet in a sermon crammed with alarming things. It's as if in closing, in his closing argument, he's pulling out all the stops to say to us, have you heard what I've just said? Have you read the Sermon on the Mount? It's hard to read and come out unscathed. There will, Jesus is saying, look, there will be lots of false and fraudulent followers of mine. Don't be one of them. That's what he's saying to us. Don't be one of them. So with that, we'll make four points. I know there's only three verses and this guy has four points to make. But there's four points. They're all, they all start with P. Professors, powers, pronouncement, and prescription. So first, they're, in the, they're there on the outline in your bulletin. First then, the professors. And by this I mean the people in view, those making the profession of faith. So again, notice the scene, the setting. The setting of the scene here takes place on the day of judgment. Verse 22, on that day. Many, so this is the day you know, of eschatological eternal fire. The day that will reveal the quality and the character of one's labors in Christ. It's the day which separates the wheat from the tares, the sheep from the goats. It is the judgment which is already beginning at the house of God. Before this day, things remain unsettled, murky, unrectified. There's false prophets and there's false teachers and they're often undetected and they're unpunished. But this is the day of the Lord. And here our delusions and our hypocrisies vanish before the face of him from whom heaven and earth flee away. And we have on this day professors of the faith. And they seem to be impeccably orthodox. They address Jesus. You'll see this in the text. They call him Lord. And this is noble, right? Paul says No one can call Jesus Lord sincerely, he means, except by the Holy Spirit. Right? We should call Jesus Lord. If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Ultimately, on this very day, 
every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Right? So this is a good start, at least it appears to be. These are Christian people. They maintain an orthodox profession. You would see them in church. They seem passionate. They are emotionally attached to Jesus Christ. They don't just call him Lord. They say in the text, Lord, Lord. Right? The doubling, Lord, Lord, the doubling is a sign of intensity, of earnestness, of apparent sincerity. They, these are fervent people. These are zealous people. But of course, something is wrong. Something is amiss. For Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone. Not everyone sitting in church will enter the kingdom of heaven. Right? There are and there shall be false professors. Right? After all, right, even the demons believe and are perfectly orthodox on numerous things. So not everyone who professes is a true believer. That's easy enough. But Jesus says more than that. He says, on that day, now listen, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Many? Many? Wait, wait. He just said not everyone is going to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now he says, in fact, many won't. So this apparently is not something confined to an odd person here or there, which is how I think we tend to think of it. Like we tend to think Jesus, Jesus is saying, you know, there'll be an occasional scattered person who professed to be a Christian, but really wasn't on the last day. A small minority. You know, not everyone. But then he says many. The broad way has many people on it. Right? Half of the ten virgins. Right? The, ten, the, the virgins in the parable of the virgins. They have oil in their lamp. They're waiting for the bridegroom. They're in the church. When the door gets shut, Jesus says, I don't know who you are. Right? Three quarters of the people in the parable of the sower. Right? Many of these people are sitting in church. They'll, be, they'll confess, they'll be orthodox, they'll be zealous, and they'll be shut out of the kingdom of heaven. It's a hard word. Many are called, few are chosen. That's the professors. The second point here is the powers. These people labored, and apparently for Jesus quite publicly. And in fact, what you have in the text is from them something of a protest, like a desperate plea reminding God of their service, of their ministry. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many, again, not a few, many mighty works in your name? Right, this was not, can you remember that miracle from 1973 that we did? We did many mighty works. Jesus denies none of this. It seems apparent that they did prophesy, that they did cast out demons, that they did many, many mighty works. 
And they did it all, notice this, they did it all in Jesus' name. Not in their own name. They ministered in Jesus' name. Three times in the text, it's a short text, right? Three times they insist that all that they did was in that blessed name. In your name, we did this. In your name, in your name, they expect admission to the kingdom. So we have a great and frightful mystery here. Right? Unregenerate people, unbelievers, people who are damned can have what our confession calls the common operations of the spirit and they can be quite impressive. There are classes of people, again, in the parable of the sower, who respond to the word, who produce fruits who don't endure since they have no real root in themselves. Right? Hebrews 6 says you can partake of the Spirit. You can taste of the good word of God. You can partake of the power of the age to come and yet not belong to Christ. Right? Balaam had the gift of prophecy and was not among the people of God. Saul had the gift of prophecy when he was among the prophets. The spirit rushed on him and he prophesied. There are Jewish exorcists casting out demons following the apostles in Acts 19, apparently. And we heard in the Old Testament lessons that the, that the magicians of Egypt could duplicate many of the mighty works that God did through Moses. Right? False Christ. False prophets, Jesus says, will arise. They'll perform great signs and wonders, if possible, to lead astray even the elect. Right? The Antichrist himself has power to do false signs and deceptive wonders, 2 Thessalonians. So the spiritual world, the invisible realm, the realm of principalities and powers is wild and it's strange and it won't fit into our little boxes. It's mysterious. It's untamed. Stuff happens. Real stuff. Impressive stuff. Apparently stuff for the furthering of the kingdom of God. And yet we still find this dreadful scene. Right, the point is clear enough, I think. Right, spectacular gifts. Magnificent endowments of the Spirit will be given to many church people. But maybe not just these mentioned here, but other prominent public gifts are included as well here. If you go to Luke 13, you will see that when Jesus does this, the parallel of this passage, he does two things. He takes the strive to enter by the narrow way passage, and he connects it with the depart from me, I never knew you passage. But you know who the people are in that case? The people who come and are shut out of the kingdom? You know what they say? They don't say they did any miracles or cast out any demons. They say, Lord, we ate and drank with you. And you taught in our streets. We went to the fellowship meal. We had the supper in your church. We went to your teachings. We sat in the pews, Lord. He says, I don't know where you're from. Depart from me. Same language as is used here. So we cannot say to ourselves, well, 
I don't have the gift of miracles or casting out demons, so I guess this text doesn't really apply to me. This is surely not an exhaustive list. Right? Such people call Jesus Lord, they invoke his name, they do many wonderful things. They will be pillars of ministry. You will send them donations. Obviously, the hand of God is upon them. Now, who doesn't long for miracles and signs and wonders and other obvious evidences of God's blessing? These people profess the faith and they have power. And that brings me to the third point, which is this pronouncement. They've made their profession. Jesus has a pronouncement of his own to make. Not everyone, he's already told us this, right, who confesses and exercises these powers will enter the kingdom. And then if you look at the text in verse 23, it's, and then I will declare. So on that day, after you've had your say, after you've listed for God all the things you did for God, Jesus will speak. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, these are horrific words. So the self-deception that's at play here is profound. And Jesus expects us to take it to heart. It's really important right here to remember he's addressing us, disciples. Like he's not addressing some group of aliens. We have an enormous capacity to persuade ourselves wrongly about ourselves. Right? To walk around in a veritable river of self-delusion with false peace and false assurance. What does Jesus' pronouncement tell us about what has happened to these people? Some sort of huge, gaping chasm has opened between their public persona, their ministry, their giftedness, and the interior reality of who they actually are before the face and the light of the triune God. And so bankrupt is their inner being that Jesus says... I never knew you. Never. Not at one point. They were never Christians. And yet they had more outer evidence than almost anyone that they were the genuine servants of God. It's a fearful and frightening text. Notice as well, Jesus does not say, you never knew me. He says, I never knew you. From from where they sit, they know Jesus. They say, Lord, Lord. They do everything in Jesus' name. But he declares that he does not and never has known them. Knowing here means loving. It's equivalent to choosing, setting his mercy, his affection on. It's It's not like he means I wasn't cognizant about you. Knowing is an intimate marital word. When we are converted, we come to know God, or as Paul says in Galatians, we come to be known by God. When you're converted, you come to be known by God. 
That has never happened here. There has been no spirit-wrought intimacy with the Holy Trinity in these people. There has been ministry galore, though. In Christ's name, with visible fruit, but there has been no interior spiritual life and union with the risen Christ. Remember, I've spoken about what I call the God and X problem. Right? The God and X problem is where X is some form of Christian service. It, X is a noble Christian thing. Right? God and X, God and whatever it is, Christian cultural engagement, Christian homeschooling, Christian prayer, Christian missionary work, right? God and X. And what happens over time is that X gets really, really big and God himself fades into the background. You could almost, as I said before, you almost take the word God out and just put the word green in there. It wouldn't matter if this God, if there were four persons in this Godhead instead of three. None of it matters at a certain point. What matters is the Christian ministry. Well, for these people, X has become everything. God has vanished. Right? This is a real danger of Christian ministry. Trust me, I, I, this is what I do. Right? The X part of the Christian life can literally drown out the God part. And Jesus tells them, most awfully, depart from me. Right? They didn't really care about his presence or his face anyway. What they cared about was their Christian ministry. And then what they did is they collapsed that in and they said, well, that is my concern for God. That is my love of God. That is my union with God. And this text says, no, it isn't. You can be fully engaged in X and actually alienated from God himself. And so the prophesying ones, the exorcists, the miracle workers, the ones who fellowship with Jesus and eat with him, who attend his teaching, they are consigned to hell. Right? The place of narcissistic self-destruction where the light and glory of God is hated and despised with perfect consistency. Far from extolling their gifts, Jesus calls their fake their empty, their rootless interior lives, lawless. Notice that. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What is he talking about? I mean, there's no evidence that these were openly immoral people. Or that they were even heretics. What they were was spiritual frauds. Right? They see gifts and they see ministry success. He sees lawlessness. Outside they appear righteous. Inside they are dead men's bones. They are whitewashed tombs. And remember, there will be many like this on that day. If it wasn't Jesus himself who said it, none of us would believe this. It's counterintuitive to our experience and to our instincts. And yet there it is. So finally, I, I want to talk about pres prescriptions, some things to be aware of, some things that we can do 
to assure that we are not among these many. Some of these are just self-awareness things, but I'm going to, have, I'm going to break this into four parts, four doses, four kinds of medicine that can help us here. First, it's important to remember, we have a natural tendency to look at the wrong things as evidence of salvation and righteousness and God's blessing. Right? This is part of how we are drawn into webs of deception. Most of us cannot tell because it's quite difficult. We cannot tell the difference in many instances between the flesh and the spirit in the things of God. We do not know the difference between natural animal vigor and true spiritual zeal. If you think those things are easy to pull apart, you're wrong. We easily confuse human passion or excitement with the movement of the Holy Spirit. Preachers go through this. I've, I experience this, right? If I'm a little more animated or passionate about something, people, people at the door will say, well, you were really on fire, or that was really this. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure myself. I, I just might have been more passionate about that thing. It might be purely human. I might have drank too much coffee this morning. <laughs> I don't know. You can't draw any kind of a line between how passionate and fervent I appear and exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing. I'm sure you know the story, right? Jonathan Edwards, right? Perhaps America's greatest theologian, right? Edwards, in his preaching, read a manuscript looking down at it in a monotone voice. The whole thing, all the way through. And God used this preaching extremely mightily. This was extremely effective preaching. But if Edwards came and preached here, you would all grade him as an F for presentation. Because we don't know the difference between natural animal vigor and true spiritual light. You know, no search committee would hire Jonathan Edwards. They're like, oh, this, he's got an impressive resume. There's a lot of degrees on it. But have you heard this guy preach? <laughs> So we need to realize that we have this tendency and work on discerning and tuning ourselves and keeping ourselves in step with the Spirit. There's no magic bullet or formula I can give you for this. You just need to be aware of the danger. So that's the first dose. Here's the second. The second is know the ground you're standing on. Jesus has already told us in the Sermon on the Mount at some length. And again, this is counterintuitive to us. He has told us that it is the spiritual life precisely. It is piety itself which tends to produce spiritual frauds. Right? The very means of grace become the means of self-aggrandizement and pride. Right? Prayer, he says, almsgiving, fasting, spiritual gifts, all of it is ground which is slippery and can actually seduce us away from God into making a show for men in the name of God. Right? The, the unbelieving person who never attends church and doesn't believe in God has a lot of problems and a lot to answer for. But they're generally not susceptible to this kind of deception. Right? You have to actually be in the land of piety for this to happen to your soul. 
You have to be in the land of fasting and prayer and almsgiving. And if we lose sight of this, right, we can end up doing everything for show. We drift away from the living God right in the middle of our Christian labors. So recognizing the ground that you are on, the Christian ground that you're on, as potentially the seedbed of deception is the second dose of medicine here. Third, third prescription. These are clearly people who refuse to examine themselves. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. This is a church, by the way, which had a lot of these kinds of problems. Super apostles and people with hyper-spirituality. So he says in 2 Corinthians, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So in other words, he doesn't say, look, examine yourselves so you can clean up a few of the rough edges at the corners of your Christian life. The purpose of the examination in the Corinthian church is to see whether you are a Christian or not. Whether you have to test yourself, he says, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, Paul says, you fail the test. So this is a self-administered test. You can test yourself, Paul thinks. You can administer a test to yourself and grade yourself. It takes a certain amount of objectivity to do this, and you can even recognize, I'm failing the test here. It's too late on this day to probe your motives on the day in our text to ask, why am I really doing this? Right? We have the word, we have the supper, and they both conduce, or they should conduce, to sober self-evaluation, to judgment before the judgment day. That's one of the great mercies of God about the supper. It allows you to judge yourself before the judgment day. So that's the third prescription. Test yourself. Judge yourself. The fourth and last one is this. Who enters the kingdom of heaven on this day? Well, Jesus tells us in the text. The one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So we are not saved by our obedience, but we will not be saved without it. But we need to ask this question. In this context... What does Jesus mean by the will of his Father? And hopefully this is familiar to us by now. He means nothing more than the Sermon on the Mount, than the ethos of the Beatitudes, than the fruit of the Spirit, right? The righteousness greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. Obedience to the will of the Father starts in the secret chambers of one's heart. This, Jesus says, is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Heaven will only have people who embody the Sermon on the Mount. Right? And many, many gifted servants will be found wanting in the light of this sermon on that day. Now, in closing, I'm going to say two things. None of this should cause us to despise genuine gifts of the Spirit that the Lord gives or genuine ministries that He calls us to. But, and here's the second thing, we need to remember Jesus' words, which as always orient us correctly. Listen to these words. 
When the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, notice that, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So notice the connection with our text. These are Christian disciples. Jesus has given them authority. Listen to the text. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. I mean, Jesus does give some in the church, or at least in the apostolic age and, and probably throughout church history, authority to cast demons out. Then he says this, nevertheless, that's a big nevertheless in this text. I've given you authority to cast demons out, nevertheless. Nevertheless, what? Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Can you imagine? We, we, we are casting demons out all over the place and we're not supposed to rejoice in that? Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that you are elect and chosen and have been begotten again by the Spirit of God and that you are in union with the triune God. That, nevertheless, is crucial. That is order and proportion. What would make the church or the Christians you know rejoice with glory and exaltation and joy? Raising some people from the dead? Casting a bunch of demons out? Having a bunch of miracles happen? In, in wonders in the sight of the world? Or the fact that you are elect and your name is written in heaven? Jesus says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in this. Rejoice in this, that your name is written in heaven. That is order and proportion. That is the priority of the Sermon on the Mount. It will reorder your world. And such are the ones that God will own, that God will say he knows on the last and great day. Amen.